You're listening to podcasts from the Congressional Internet Caucus Advisory Committee, www.netcaucus.org. Shared definition is of the thing that we're discussing. So first I'll call each one of them up, and I'll give their Twitter handles in case you are tweeting today. There is a hashtag. It's pound P2P economy. Um, we'll see if that's applicable. So first, we'll start with Adam Tierer. He's uh, from the Mercatus Research Center at George Mason University. He is Adam Tierer, as you can see on your program. Um, he has a new paper out, Unlocking um, the Sharing Economy. Uh, you can see uh, the, his case for uh, re regulation or the lack thereof um, out in the table. I imagine we'll bring that up. Um, I want to bring up uh, David Hantman from Airbnb. Here, uh, he's going to have some discussions on public policy and some of the challenges there. It's nice to see you in person, sir. Um, let's see if I can get this right. Aaron Sundararajan, did I come close? Yeah, pretty close. Pretty close, <laughs> okay. Welcome, Professor from the New York University Stern School of Business. And uh, finally, John uh, Breo from the National Consumers League. So I'm going to uh, crib directly from your paper, Adam, because I, there actually is a definition in there. And if, if you all agree with me, then uh, we can start off with that as the definition. Um, some people call this the uh, collaborative economy or the peer production economy or the peer-to-peer -peer economy. That's our P2P hashtag. Um, they suggest that think of it as any marketplace that brings together distributed networks of individuals to share or exchange otherwise underutilized assets. Now, I know you agree with that, Adam. Mm -hmm. What about the rest of you? Is that what we should call the sharing economy or is it something else? I agree with that so far. I think we're so early in this that who knows what it'll be like in five years. And I think of it as more of an empowerment economy. Empowerment economy, okay. Different way of thinking. What about you? Yeah, um, I mean, I think that's probably a better definition than calling it the sharing economy. When we think of sharing, their natural inclination is, oh, we're taught to share from a very early age. It's a great thing. Uh, and in effect, when we talk about many of these services, we're talking about more of a, what I think of as a matchmaking service and a matchmaking service for a fee. Um, so to think of it as purely sharing, I think, uh, obscures a little bit uh, what these services do. Uh, but I, I would agree absolutely that they are um, utilizing underutilized, finding a way to help us under utilize uh, underutilized resources. Okay. And agree? Um, yeah, I, uh, I, I like the definition of sort of being broader than ones that I've heard before. Um, I'd expand the um, I'd expand the term asset to include labor and capital as well, mm -hmm. um, but we're certainly sort of centering up, setting up sort of typically internet-based um, decentralized communities or decentralized networks, and I think your hashtag um, P2P um, what was it P2P P2P economy that's the net cost P2P, P2P economy economy is also another sort of like you know highlights another sort of salient aspect of what we call the sharing economy that it um, it sort of moves economic transactions away from being between traditional firms or sort of large entities and consumers, and uh, it shifts it away from that and towards sort of like, you know, platform-mediated peer-to-peer exchange. So to ground this in specifics, uh, people have most likely heard of Airbnbs. Uh, how many people here have used Uber in the room? So, okay. How many people have used Lyft? Aha, they're, they're, they're winning in that part of the share economy. So that's an example of a substantive service that is connecting demand to capacity or giving people a simple, easy-to-use platform which can call in a car from where they are. Uh, what other kinds of examples do, should people know about um, beyond these two? Uh, obviously, from Airbnb, um, what examples would you share in your sector? 
So, I mean, Airbnb is the main one that allows, you know, regular people to rent out their own homes. Um, it really is about sharing their assets that are underutilized. Um, oh, yep. <laughs> is it this one? Oh. Yep. So Airbnb lets you rent out your home, your apartment, um, a tree house, a boat, um, whatever, uh, using our site. And we've had about 26 million people do that over the last six years. Um, there are plenty of other examples of labor um, and and resources. I mean, when when we order food now, we use services for people to bring it to us. You can be really get any restaurant. Um, there are personal chefs. There's tour guides. Um, essentially, everything that you can get, you can you can start to get now uh, with regular people who are just doing that on the side or as or as their business. Okay, professor. What would you say? Yes, I was uh, tweeting. Examples, that's fine. Thanks. <laughs> well, um, you know, that it's, it's sort of a pretty broad range, right? I mean, you've got the peer-to-peer -peer accommodation. You've got peer-to-peer um, -peer transportation. And I think uh, these are the two most visible ones early on because our home and our vehicle as individuals tend to sort of be our two most valuable assets. Mm -hmm. um, but there's um, a wide variety of crowdfunding sites that um, sort of like, you know, open up investment opportunities that... Uh, you know, used to be reserved for traditional institutions. There's um, sort of a range of labor markets now that are tapping into underutilized labor, again, so like, you, you know. To, to make it substantive, you'd, you'd agree, say, Kickstarter, Indiegogo, or uh, TaskRabbit might be examples of those things. Yep, I mean, Kickstarter and Indiegogo, um, sort of like, they, they are substitutes, peer-to-peer -peer substitutes for, I think of them as peer-to-peer -peer substitutes for philanthropy. On the other hand, um, like, you know, Lending Club, on the other hand, is a um, sort of a substitute for a bank. Um, and there are sort of other substitutes that allow you to make sort of equity investments in um, firms rather than it just being a donation, like through Kickstarter and Indiegogo. TaskRabbit, handy um, examples of um, labor markets. Um, in, in, in some ways, I mean, people associate, for example, rent the runway with the sharing economy. Um, that's a little different, and Zipcar is a little different, and I think it's helpful to sort of highlight the difference in that both these companies, Rent the Runway and Zipcar, um, while being sort of rental services, are not peer-to-peer -peer services. Um, they sort of buy the assets that are then sort of rented out to consumers, much like Blockbuster would, um, and so that sort of distinguishes them from Airbnb or Uber or Lyft. Adam, what about you? You did some research here. What's the benefits of that? Yeah, well, there's a lot of uh, sorry. There's a lot of uh, sectors that have yet to see the full benefits of the sharing economy, but we're starting to see the explosion of uh, shared services in uh, the fields of goods, underutilized goods, and uh, food and money and a couple of others. I'll just mention the goods ones because I think it's the most exciting. Think about all of these sort of underutilized under, under uh, goods that we have in our lives, like tools, things like this. There are sites now, uh, a thousandtools.com, to connect tool owners and tool borrowers, you know, to borrow stuff that just sits in your garage, never being utilized. You can rent it out by the hour. Uh, muni rent allows small municipal governments to share certain types of equipment with one another when they're not utilizing it to save uh, taxpayers money. Um, and there are a host of other, other types of goods you can imagine. Anything that's sort of sitting around doing nothing is something that could be part of the sharing economy once an entrepreneur gets that idea and puts a platform together. For food, things are even more exciting and fun. Um, I don't know how many of you have heard of uh, Feastly or Eat With, but these are services where you can either go to someone's home and you can pick up a dish that they've made and take it home with you, or you can go to their home and eat in their home and they will prepare certain types of dishes that they specialize in. Uh, you can go online, you can type in, uh, I'm a fan, big fan of Indian food and uh, of sushi, and you can find people in this area who specialize in making those types of dishes, go to their home and eat. 
But those are just a, a scratches the surface of the kind of things you can do, uh, I mean, with food and, and goods, which are two exciting new areas. But you? Things you're tracking, watching? Sure. I mean, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think it's, on, I think. Yeah, it's um, you know, certainly the, the big fish in this debate are going to be uh, the uh, car sharing services, the Uber and Lyft and, and Airbnb. They've certainly gotten the most press uh, over the past year or so. Um, but certainly I think, you know, I would, I'm tracking uh, some of the services that Adam talked about. And in particular, what I'm concerned about is um, where is, is liability shifting. Um, so how is liability for things like accidents that happen with tools that you've lent out to someone else for a fee? Uh, covered. Uh, certainly, this has been a big issue in terms of, of uh, Uber and, and Lyft and others. Um, but I think this is a, that's a, one core issue that can be discussed any time that you're discussing uh, a service where there is borrowing or sharing, what you want to call it, but there's a fee involved in that transaction. And I think that that fee is, is of critical importance to whether or not uh, there is some sort of liability involved. Um, so I think that's, that's an issue I hope we, we talk about as we move through this panel today. Well, that actually brings us into maybe the meat of this. Uh, if you're following the entrance of a lot of these companies into markets, they're often doing it in a somewhat end-around way. There's actually a conflict as we speak uh, in Portland, Oregon, where the uh, company in question, Uber, um, is being told by the city, you can't operate here, and they're doing it anyway. Um, Uber has done an end around in many cases, uh, and as a result, they've become the poster child for moving quickly where the regulations don't quite exist to cover what they do. Um, you have, you know, quite strong existing regulatory structures for taxi cabs and medallion systems and regulation that are often thought to be in the consumer interest um, because we consider them to be a matter of public accommodation. And that term is actually really important to think about in the context of things like vehicles the public can use, might think of mass transit, might think of uh, buses, but also taxi cabs are part of the nervous system of cities, particularly when the infrastructure is built around cars. And then, of course, in terms of housing. Now, New York City and Airbnb have a contentious relationship in this count. Um, can you talk a little bit about where some of the tensions are here and whether people's homes, if they're being rented out, should be considered areas of public accommodation? And then, if so, how they should be considered by the city and how they should be regulated, in your opinion? Sure. Um, so we have a contentious relationship with some people in New York City. Uh, most people in New York City love Airbnb, support the sharing economy. Um, every poll you look at, it's, it's between 60 and 75 percent of people think this is completely fine. It's important to realize that, you know, all of these activities we're talking about have been going on for thousands of years. You know, the sharing economy and the Internet didn't invent you giving your rake to your neighbor to help them with their lawn and them, you know, buying you a bottle of wine in return. It didn't, it didn't invent rumors and borders or people driving you from the airport. So all that's really happening is it's becoming more transparent and it's becoming really more um, interesting to talk about. So it's been in the press a lot. So in New York what we see is people trying to figure out exactly this question. If you have been renting out your own home for a week a year and all of a sudden you're doing it on the internet, is that a business or is it just, you know, sort of incidental to what you do. And the rules in New York were passed in 2010, and they were designed to stop people from having an entire building and turning it into a short-term rental, thus circumventing all the laws uh, that apply to hotels. But the bill was drafted so broadly, it applies to everybody. And the people who drafted it said, don't worry, it doesn't, it's not meant to apply to the people on Airbnb because they're just doing this once in a while. And then three years later, the Attorney General in New York subpoenaed all of our data, including those regular people that the law wasn't supposed to apply to. And so we get into this debate with New York about, well, can you, can you draft a law 
that stops bad guys, people with 400 apartments, and allows your citizens to do this a couple of weeks a year. So far, they haven't been able to figure that out. We're working on it. I think everyone agrees there should be a way to figure it out. Um, but New York is a big city. It's complicated. They had very early housing laws. You know, everything that we do touches rent control and rent stabilization and housing affordability and noise and safety and fire code and zoning and all the things that have been going on in New York for 200 years that are complicated to change. And I think until governments like New York recognize that this is here, it's happening, the citizens want it, and there's a balance to be struck, we're going to be in this, this noisy relationship. But most cities around the world are getting it right. I mean, we've passed laws. They've passed laws in six or seven cities already, in Amsterdam and Hamburg and all of France and Portland and Portugal, um, San Francisco a month ago. So we're headed in the right direction, but cities are trying to figure out what to do, and they haven't yet quite gotten there in some of them. Well, it's a, a challenging issue for a lot of places where you simply don't have the uh, – you say, the activity itself becoming more transparent. There uh, is clearly a shadow economy that's going on all the time. There always has been with people bartering time or resources or services for other things. The question here is when you technologically enable it through an app, is that something that um, then needs to be regulated in a different way? Uh, now, you've made some cases that you should be hands-off, and I'm looking at both of you in this context. Um, are there cases, on the other hand, will make you argue the opposite, where they shouldn't be hands-off, right, where we have consumer regulations, consumer protections that are there for a reason? Um, is there uh, some reason that uh, because these people are now being connected to the services, the products, whatever it is, to the capacity through the Internet or the mobile phone, which is maybe a more useful frame in many cases because these are apps, um, does is that fundamentally change the issue of whether the protection shouldn't be there or who they should be applied to or how? Either one of you can take Go that ahead. one. Yeah. So, so let's take a step back and ask a question about the rules that were put in place to serve the public interest and protect consumers, because certainly those laws and regulations were put in place with the very best of intentions, and they were aimed at improving quality, reducing prices, protecting consumers from various other harms, so on and so forth. Unfortunately, the history of a lot of the regulatory regimes that grew up around those well-intentioned laws did not exactly play out as promised. And so you have a lot of sectors, and let's just utilize the transportation sector here since obviously ride-sharing services are sort of the leading, the leading edge of the policy debates. You look at those sectors and you realize uh, there's a long history there of consumers being poorly served, even with the existence of rules that say, you know, you need to have better <coughs> prices, these are your service terms, so on and so forth. So along comes the sharing economy. And exactly as you said, Alex, it offers these different products in, uh, in a different way and offers consumers exactly what they've been looking for. All of a sudden, I can, as, as I did when I came here today with my colleague Taylor Barkley back there from Mercatus Center in, in Virginia, we drove here in an Uber. It was a Mercedes. It was a clean car. It smelled good. It was a good price. It got us here on time. These things did not happen in days past. And so we need to understand that no matter how well-intentioned public policies may be, they don't always deliver on the promises. We should accommodate, therefore, new choices that give consumers the ability to access things they've always wanted, either at a better price, better terms of service, or whatever else. That being said, you have the regulatory asymmetry problem, the so-called unlevel playing field. Um, and what our paper that we're releasing today tries to point out is that there's a right way and a wrong way to level the proverbial playing field. The wrong way to do it, in our opinion, is to try to regulate everybody up to the same old regulatory standard, which really didn't serve consumers very well. 
The better approach is to liberalize or deregulate down everybody on a level playing field so you have very minimal sort of basic rules that apply equally but do not burden any new entrant unfairly because we want to encourage more choice because that's ultimately how consumers are served. Back. I think you turned it out, the question back around to uh, advocating on that yeah, one. Okay, so let me, uh, uh, let, me, let me pretend to answer your question as well. Um, I'll circle back um, if you keep doing that. <laughs> Well, you know, I mean, I, I, I see some of the roots of sort of the regulatory challenges here as coming from the blurring of lines between personal and professional in the provision of commercial services. I mean, we've always given people rides to the airport. We've lent our apartments to people. We've um, sort of invited people over for dinner. We've lent people money to start a new business. Um, but um, the thing about the... Sh sort of the sharing economy platforms or these peer-to-peer -peer platforms is that they're scaling this behavior and they're adding a um, sort of, they're adding a commercial aspect, an explicit commercial aspect to it. And so, um, you know, from the point of view of someone who's renting out their place on Airbnb or giving someone a ride in a lift, um, there's sort of a reasonable argument to be made for them that, hey, I've been doing this anyway. Um, this isn't really a new behavior. Why should I have to sort of like, you know, conform to a whole new set of rules? Um, the flip side is that like, you know, as behaviors scale, um, like, you know, there are a bunch of unintended consequences that emerge. And so, you know, I mean, the, the, the position I have generally taken is that um, like, you know, is, is I think hands-off is sort of like, you know, too simplistic mm -hmm. uh, a, a way of thinking about it. Um, you know, we want government regulation when markets can't provide something that society needs by themselves, right? I mean, like, you know, if, um, like, you know, in a capitalist society, if markets are sort of getting the outcomes that society wants, then we don't want regulation. We like to sort of have the markets take care of themselves. Um, because of the fact that we're transitioning into an economy where more and more commerce is a person providing a service to another person mediated by a platform, um, it's likely that the market is going to be able to sort of do some of the things that we previously needed the government for. And so, like, if you have a platform that sits between a driver and a passenger, um, you have a new entity that's sitting in between these two. If you have Airbnb sitting between a host and a guest. And so, you know, I think that we should wait and see what the market actually provides and then sort of reframe our regulations so that the government's intervention is surgical. It's sort of there when it's needed. It's there to sort of correct these market failures. It's there to ensure things like sort of wheelchair accessible cars and fire safety. And um, like, you know, it's not there when the market is taking care of itself. So you, you actually have a, a great entree. To make this substantive, Uber has been accused of uh, not picking up uh, people who have service animals. This is something that has actually happened in markets, but the market hasn't corrected for this. Now, Uber might respond and say, well, we've kicked these drivers off once there's a, uh, a complaint. Um, but we've got actions where individual drivers are making choices. On the other hand, you might read a story by, by uh, Jenna Wortham from the New York Times. She wrote on Medium about this of all places, speaking of platforms, um, about how the experience that she has as a, a person of African-American descent, a New York Times reporter, wouldn't get picked up by taxis. Now, minorities have been talking about that in cities for a long time, and yet here we have an example where they're saying, in some cases, Uber allows me to get a cab where I couldn't have otherwise. So 
two different sides. In one case, someone who might have accessibility issues is discriminated against because the drivers don't want to accommodate that. On the other hand, someone who's saying that I'm being discriminated against in the market because of my race is getting picked up. So it's not so black and white. But you brought up an interesting point, which is that you have something like Feastly, where people are sharing food. Now, food is a real challenge here because of spoilage. How, are, how should be consumers protect, be protected there? Does this mean that everyone who's involved in Feastly should be carrying their own insurance? Is the Feastly platform responsible? I mean, where do the old protections exist? And I throw this back to you as the consumer advocate. Sure. Um, well, you know, it's, it's interesting when you're talking about, and I, I won't speak to Feastly because I'm not as familiar with them as I are, am with, with Uber and, and Airbnb, but most of these platforms encourage uh, someone, for example, in the UberX platform where it's a personal car as opposed to a commercial vehicle that's being used, like a, a chauffeured um, uh, town car. Um, there is a, uh, they are asked to rely on their personal insurance first. And then if that personal insurance uh, uh, declines to cover a particular incident uh, because that is a, uh, the, the vehicle or the home was being used for a commercial purpose, then it will default to a secondary insurance provided by the platform. Um, you know, this is, uh, and when I talked about liability shifting earlier, this is what I was alluding to. There are certainly some loopholes that I think certain uh, platforms have, have been trying to exploit here to try and uh, reduce their insurance burden. Um, but it, it does come down to, well, are, are consumers being protected enough when they are using these platforms. Uh, I think there are many cases out there you can find uh, when you look at uh, Airbnb, stories about Airbnb and Uber and Lyft and others, where when that incident did happen, a consumer was not uh, or had trouble getting coverage from the platform provider despite this provision of a secondary insurance. Um, <clears throat> so I think that's an issue that needs to be looked at in, in, in more detail. But you know, one of the things that has, that has uh, struck me about this debate in general has been the lack of, of good data out there, uh, if we're comparing, say, t taxi cabs to, to Uber, and we will take your example of, of the, the African-American New York Times reporter who wasn't picked up by a regular taxi, um, I personally am trying to find data um, here in D.C. about complaints against the Taxi Cab Commission um, for issues like this, for issues of rude drivers with poorly maintained cars. Um, that data is incredibly difficult to find and to, to get access to. And until we're able to get data like that and compare it, compare it in a holistic way against uh, consumer satisfaction with services like Uber and Airbnb, uh, I think it's difficult to determine whether or not we should regulate and whether how we should regulate in a different way or not. So I think that's where I would want to start, is saying how do we make this data more available? Well, on that count, it's, I think, worth bringing up that here in D.C., Uber is actively lobbying the local government, as reported by WAMU, not to have to disclose who it picks up. It's actively trying to prevent data about who, whether it discriminates against anyone or not from moving into the marketplace. It's pushing local government to change the law that is being pushed forward so that it doesn't affect it in the way that it affects the other taxi cabs in the city. And this is an example where there can be asymmetries in the market despite our hope, right, that they won't be. Um, you know, you mentioned that your data came out um, that it's become, uh, I think, much more transparent because of a result of that uh, around what the practices are. Um, can you talk a bit more about the protections for uh, people staying there and be uh, in terms of the consumer laws that apply to them and what you ask of hosts? Um, and I should disclose that for a while in 2009, 2010, we were, my, my family was hosts here in Capitol Hill. 
um, something. So we looked into this a little bit, and we found stories of people trashing homes while someone was away. We even found a story more recently of someone who wouldn't leave, right? And then there became this big issue because in some cases you get squatting laws that show up if someone occupies a domicile for more than 30 days in some places. It gets really ugly. And there's this challenge. When someone calls themselves a platform, listen. Because that often means they're saying that it's up to the independent operators who are on the platform to be liable for what happens on it, not them. So can you tell me more about your practices? Because Sure. It's worth hearing. So that's about a, a two-week conversation, but I will, I'll, I'll just summarize it. First, um, the platform issue is interesting. We're in 34,000 cities. We have about a million listings, um, I think about 700,000 hosts now. Um, we, we are a platform. No matter how many employees we have, we couldn't possibly keep track of every law, local ordinance, lease, everything else. So to a large extent, we do rely on hosts to understand their law and their lease, and they sign up to our terms of service and they say that. On the other hand, as a platform and as a business, we think we do this the best and we want people to use our platform, and so we've instituted a large number of protections to make it safer and more transparent. So we have, for a long time now, had a million dollars of a host guarantee, so if a place does get trashed. You know, the first time it happened when the company had about eight employees, the company did say, I don't know what to do about that. I mean, it was your house. That was not the right response, right? Um, they quickly developed a protection. It was a $50,000 um, host guarantee to begin with, and now it's a million dollars. So if someone, you know, spills coffee on your couch or breaks your door, you know, we pay for it, right? Um, and we do have insurance for that, you know, sort of secondary insurance. Um, and then we just rolled out um, a liability insurance policy for hosts and even landlords if their insurance doesn't cover personal liability issues. It took us a long time to get that because there isn't a lot of data and insurance companies operate off of data and they just didn't understand what to charge. So for a long time they said we can't even begin to figure out what to do here because we know how to insure a home, we know how to insure a hotel, we just don't know how to insure this. So come back to us in a few years and we kept pushing and pushing. So now we're rolling that out. Um, but I want to go back to this data question because I think that's the most important thing. You know, in, in New York, which is the best example of this conflict we've had, we had about 700,000 people stay. Um, there were three or four incidents that were, you know, reported in the press. Those are really the only incidents that we, we know of that were, were significant. When we've looked at data, data behind the scenes that the government gave us, uh, gave a reporter actually after a, a FOIA request about how many complaints there are about short-term rentals generally, and what those what those entail, you know, there are a couple hundred a year. They're mostly about noise. They're mostly not actually about short-term rentals. What happens is a next-door neighbor says, I think there's strangers next door having a party. I think it's on Airbnb. And then the investigation shows it was really like the college kid home and he didn't tell his parents or something. So there, it turns out there are about three complaints that we could identify to New York's 311 system where people complain out of these 700,000 people. Um, that might have been related to any Airbnb activity, and it was just kind of, it was noise, and those people got kicked off. And so if you really look at the data now, it leads us to the conclusion that we should wait and see what happens as opposed to jump and, and stop it. But I think this data question is really important because if the data shows that it's a problem, the government does have a role, and we've never said otherwise, right? We do think people who have 200 listings might be a problem. Um, if you want to increase enforcement, increase penalties there, but let people do this in their own home, I think that makes sense. Just as Uber is different than UberX, you know, which is different than Lyft, which is different than Sidecar, every model is a little bit different. And the closer you get to a person doing this once in a while, which they've always done, and the more transparent you make it so they can make an informed choice, mm -hmm. I think the less you need government intervention. So just to uh, push in here, uh, Airbnb makes 
approximately what kind of net revenue every year right now? I don't think we can say that. Ballpark? Well, I mean, millions, tens of millions, hundreds of millions of dollars? I literally think I would be fired if I started talking about revenue <laughs> okay. right now. Uh, but, uh, but you're making more than a million dollars a year, right? No, $10 million a year. Um, we're, 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 we're making a fair amount. Making a fair uh, amount. About 90% of that money sticks with the hosts, by the way. Okay. It's important. And, and, uh, but in terms of now the cost of putting in the, the insurance that you just described, how much are you spending a year on that? Uh, again, all of these numbers, first of all, it's new. So, um, but it's a significant amount of money. And look, we, ha we have, you know, when I started a couple of years ago, we had about 200 people in the company. We now have about 1,500. Mm -hmm. Most of those people, um, you know, there's a lot of engineers creating a better product, but there are a lot of customer service people just dedicated to fielding calls about this kind of question. Can, can you say that you spend more than a million dollars a year giving a million dollars in protection and in your insurance to all your various hosts? Is that is that? I, I actually don't know the answer, okay. but I don't think I would. Be uh, so. Alex, can I can I? The, the reason I'm, I'm after this is because Airbnb is a big company. They're getting bigger and bigger. Like every expectation that they're going to be in every single metropolitan area around the world over the next five years, certainly over the next decade. So the question is. Can the kind of model that you all are offering for protections um, for hosts be a model for others? And if so, what is the cost to them? Like, is there a floor that we should expect companies who are providing these services other places? And I wanted you to hop in. But you see, well, actually, San, just just so quickly though, San Francisco passed a law which actually requires either the host or the platform to hold a certain amount of insurance. I think it was five hundred thousand dollars, and they're still debating whether to change that. And as we, you know, one of the benefits of being the most <laughs> talked about company is we get to sort of plow the way in the press and we get to plow the way with a lot of this, a lot of the products we do, but we're also plowing the way here and maybe once insurance companies realize how much it costs them, everyone can get it at a reasonable well, rate. Th thanks to the uh, various Uber executives remarks, you're actually not the most talked about company. <laughs> yes, so you yes. can thank them for that. <laughs> no, you wanted to hop in. Yeah, I mean, I've, uh, I mean, there's, see, the, um, time to vote. Yeah, there, there, there's a. I'm, for some reason, I'm sort of getting distracted by that sound. But imagine that. The gentleman from like New York, should, please rise. I, I should feel like I, feel I should like leave the building at this point. <laughs> associated with a fire alarm. Um, I think the insurance issue is going to sort of be a big part of the conversation in the next few years because, um, you know, we've uh, we've sorted out how to provide insurance, for example, for peer-to-peer -peer car rental. And um, that was actually the easy one, even though it took sort of both platforms get around and relay rides more than a year. And it was the easy one because we sort of understand the rental of cars well. We know what can happen. We know how much it costs. We know what the liability is. Now, when you come to power tool rentals or um, people sort of like, you know, coming to your home for a meal, um, it's not just the probabilities that you have to calculate or like, you know, you have to sort of define what could go wrong and you also have to sort of like, you know, come up with the numbers associated with them. So it's probably going to take a long time before we sort of like, you know, have good insurance products that address this. Um, at the same time, you know, um, the idea of um, if we sort of go back to food sharing, I mean, like, you know, the idea of applying the existing <laughs> regulatory solution, which in New York City is the Department of Health, like, you know, sort of periodically inspecting restaurants. And, you know, it's important to sort of realize that that is sort of a compromise that society has reached, right? We don't have an inspector posted in every restaurant inspecting every piece of food. We've sort of drawn the line somewhere. And we're going to have to draw a new line um, to avoid, like, you know, the possibility of thinking about the Department of Health being sort of 
commissioned with having to inspect every sort of personal kitchen that might occasionally want to sort of host a feastly. Um, I have one more point that, like, you know, I'll make real quick and then I'll stop, which is, um, you know, but just to sort of summarize that last thing, I mean, the scale of operations here, when we're dealing with hundreds of thousands of hosts or sort of millions of drivers, the kind of regulatory solution that you want to sort of ensure the outcomes that you need has to, in my opinion, necessarily involve the platform, this new entity that is sort of sitting in between, or some sort of third-party organization that is sort of like, you know, providing some of the things that we used to need the government for. Then finally, on the on, on, on sort of the use of data, I think it's really important for us to draw a <coughs> distinction between the availability of data to sort of get to the outcomes that we want. Let's say that we want to sort of minimize or eliminate um, the kind of discriminatory behavior that we have sort of observed either towards people with sort of like service animals or sort of like, you know, people of certain ethnicities. Um, the disclosure of data in itself isn't necessarily to me a solution. Um, an alternative solution might be to sort of have the government put in place guidelines that the platform then implements. The platform has the data. We have far more data about who's getting into what taxi, who's staying in what apartment, who's eating at what table, who's lending money to whom, than we do in the informal economy. We don't have to sort of necessarily restrict ourselves only to a solution where the platform hands over this data to the government and the government does stuff with it. We could instead think about a solution where there are certain outcomes that need to be accomplished, but the responsibility for accomplishing them is delegated to the entity that is gathering this sort of data, um, which is the platform in this case. So that's, I'm not saying that that's the best solution all the time. I'm just saying that that's sort of an option. And so I, I feel it's important to sort of, you know, I mean, a resistance to disclosing data doesn't necessarily mean an opposition to regulation. Hmm. So, uh, so Alex, let's drill down a little bit more on this question of accidents and liability, because certainly accidents will happen, and, and no one here is arguing that there shouldn't be any sort of regulation broadly defined to deal with it, but how we regulate matters. Before we get to that, let's acknowledge the fact that the singular achievement of the sharing economy has been the rise of a set of really robust reputational feedback mechanisms, and that the reason that this economy works as well as it does and doesn't have as many problems as you think it would is precisely because you have these mechanisms in place that allow people to radiate each other and to share information about these sites and services. That's a really incredible thing. It's not a perfectly self-regulating market mechanism, but it's a fairly effective self-regulating market mechanism such that people live in fear of the ratings that they'll get on both sides of transactions these days. That's a really powerful thing. Well, people thing. sue over them. Uh, it, they get uh, very serious yes. about I mean, that's, it, right? Yes. I mean, we've seen uh, people who are absolutely irate over their reviews on Yelp that leads to actual offline altercations. Absolutely. Really upset and that, that's an issue. There's a yeah. question about the, the effectiveness or the, or the, or the, uh, the, you know, the, the quality of certain reputational sure. mechanisms. That being said, I can't get out of any ride-sharing service today out of the doors without them saying, please give me five stars, please give me five stars. And I'm pleading for this, and we're like dealing, we're like working on each other, right? That's nice. That has a very powerful regulatory kind of effect to it, right? We're both trying to, you know, achieve higher quality and satisfy each other. That being said, accidents happen. There are problems. There are questions of liability. The difference is this. Are we going to take a preemptive, precautionary sort of sectoral approach that tries to envision every conceivable hypothetical thing that could go wrong and plan for it through cumbersome sets of regulations? Or are we going to have more generally applicable 
after the fact, as sort of ex post responsive legal mechanisms that arise from the common law, such as insurance requirements, you know, contract law, product liability, torts, and even some other targeted statutes, even things like civil rights legislation or privacy policies, right? But these things are generally applicable. We do not set up entire commissions to just regulate a certain sector to deal with that problem. We just said, say, this is a concern we have, discrimination, privacy, whatever else, accidents. And we deal with them ex post. That's, this is the way that the vast majority of our economy operates today. Only a few select sectors really have these special sectoral regulations that we think, this is important enough, we need to have preemptive laws. What's wrong with those preemptive sectoral specific policies? They're captured by industry. They're used to become viciously anti-consumer in character and ultimately don't serve the public interest. So um, I lived in Boston for a while, as I, I might have previously mentioned, um, and I had a snowblower, which uh, my neighbors would love to borrow, and I said no because I talked to a lawyer. And if you've ever seen a snowblower that deals with Boston, you know it has gigantic <clears throat> you know, blades in the front, and it throws snow and ice out the side. And if I let my neighbor borrow it, and then they trash someone's car or curb or, or throw it through a window, which happens all the time, who is liability for that? The person who owns the equipment in general, right? I have a hard time imagining letting someone borrow my table saw because I know what table saws do if they're in the hands of someone who isn't trained or not. So does this make sense? Put together a contract. Put together a contract. So now it's back to me Say as the if, owner if of the there is a if there is a problem, you're liable for it if you borrow it from me. I'm, I'm, I'm just realizing that as a person who lives in an apartment in Manhattan, how few things I actually own of this kind. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, would be, I would be very worried if I sort of, like, you know, discovered that my neighbor like, you know, had, a, had some sort of power saw in his or her apartment. Well, you could uh, stop by my garage. But, you know, but see, <laughs> what, what, what you're describing is sort of a classic example of market failure. Mm. Sort of saying that here is a transaction that could be productive, but this transaction doesn't occur because, like, you know, we, we don't have. And, um, you know, uh, it's, it's not clear that a reputation system is going to sort of solve that problem. And, um, like, you know, I know many of you have read the thing I wrote for Wired a couple of years ago. I know you cite it and you've tweeted it. And, um, and like, you know, I, I think it's, it's, it's sort of, um, you know, I fell victim to sort of like, you know, the quest for headlines there where, like, reputation replaces regulation was one thing. and uh, But the point was that this was, like, you know, a sort of a bilateral user feedback system is one of many things that might start to prevent market failure. I mean, there are other things. There are um, connections to real-world identity, like Airbnb has sort of a verified ID system, Carpooling, which is a company that I follow quite closely in, um, in Europe that does city-to-city ride-sharing. I mean, I follow them because I think that, like, you know, there's something that can be learned about trust there, right? I mean, if you get into a stranger's car and say, drive me to another city, there's got to be something that is happening there that is sort of facilitating trust on the platform. They rely a lot on connections to auto club memberships. There are connections to Facebook and LinkedIn, which is sort of digitized versions of real-world social ties. There are certifications from the platform. There are forms of insurance. And so there's a combination of these different things that rest within an entity that is now sitting between these peers. And so we're going to see a lot more situations, and we're probably sort of looking towards a future where in a few years you will be comfortable um, lending your, um, your snowblower or your power saw to your neighbor because the insurance and the markets have sort of evolved. Get back to this reputation thing because I think I see an issue here. Mm -hmm. I want to bring this back to you in terms of where um, – 
we should be thinking about protections. You know, is it a matter of requiring the platform to have something like you're talking about uh, with Airbnb and carrying um, some insurance for all of its users is something that you might see, say, San Francisco pursuing here. Um, is it a matter of saying to each one of the people on the platform, um, let's, all, let's all define them as independent contractors and say that they are responsible, which is often the way that the platform would prefer this to go, right? It's the driver's fault, right? As soon as we hear from Uber that one of their drivers raped a woman, right, in Delhi right now, Delhi just, by the way, said no more yes, like yesterday. They banned Uber because one of the drivers on the service raped a woman. He turned off the phone. I should say he allegedly do it, did it, right? This is, this is not at any point in time something we should be saying absolutely happened, particularly given the context of the last week. But the fact is that Uber is banned now because of this concern by someone using its platform who turned off their device so they wouldn't be trackable, but they were on the service. You know, is the liability with them or is it with the person who let that person on the service? You know, where, where, where should we be pacing that? Is it both places? I mean, I, this is up for debate, right? Yeah. Um, you know, I think to step back just a minute, just to answer the previous question about what, uh, uh, about, uh, revenues here. Mm. Let's be clear about how much money we're talking about with some of these services. Uh, there was a business insider that found, uh, that in Washington, Uber's pulling in $141 million a year. Uh, that Airbnb is a $10 billion valuation. And Uber is 41 billion, according to the Wall Street Journal. So these are, these are, these are major, huge companies. I don't think we can think about them anymore as, as little startups that are going to be crushed by onerous regulation. Um, that said, to answer your, your specific question, I, I definitely think that, you know, when we talk about consumer protection, there's a very real reason these consumer protections were put in place in the industries that are being disrupted by these, uh, by these, uh, platforms. So uh, Uber, for example, uh, they are fighting um, in municipalities across the country um, against taxicab industry uh, over medallions. So to be a taxicab uh, driver in most uh, cities, you have to get a medallion. Those are limited in number and, and incredibly valuable, over a million dollars to get a, a medallion in New York City right now. Cost is apparently plummeting in New York right. City. Right, because, simply because uh, Uber and others are, are, are taking market share from them. Yeah. So uh, I think when we think about what consumer protections we need to apply, uh, it's interesting because on the one hand you have consumers who f obviously love these services. They are gaining market share quickly. Consumers are using them. They are rating them highly. On the other hand, you know, as these services become more popular, you're going to see more of the of these uh, the, the the rape incident in, in Delhi, the guy in in D.C. who got taken on a wild goose chase because of parking. Uh, because a, a police car pulled up behind him and pulled him over, so he got taken on a, on a high-speed chase through uh, through 395. So you'll, you'll see more of these. You, you can go fast in 395. Well, apparently it wasn't rush hour. So, um, so what what consumer protections to apply? Um, I, I think certainly insurance requirements is one. I'll uh, I'll, I'll point out we've talked a lot about um, liability is a little trickier, um, but certainly it's one that we're going to have to look at. Um, depending on the type of service that's offered. Uh, I know, for example, Uber requires background checks on its drivers. They require uh, that cars be older than, newer than a certain year and undergo uh, um, inspections to make sure that they're safe. Um, these all relate back to why consumer protections were put in place in the first place. In the hotel industry, they were put in place in New York City and elsewhere in the early 20th century because you had slums coming up and people doing short-term rentals in abhorrent conditions. Uh, gypsy cabs was a big problem 
in uh, in the car sharing in the early taxi cab industry before that was regulated. So do we want to go back to, to, to those? Do we want to wait until those sorts of negative impacts happen? I don't know. I think Adam makes a compelling case that we shouldn't preempt some of these innovations that consumers obviously love. But at the same time, I think we need to be prepared that these consumer protection issues are going to become more important as uh, as time goes along. But I, I did want to sort of comment another interesting nugget to all of this is uh, the title of this this uh, this panel today is Should Congress Be Caring About Sharing? And most of, if not uh, all, no, most of the regulations dealing with sharing economy have been, these fights have been happening at the state level and at the municipalities. So should Congress step in and preempt municipal consumer protection laws or state consumer protection laws? I think it's another thing we need to get into as well eventually. Um, but right now I think I, I would tend to agree that for Congress to be stepping in uh, uh, is beyond maybe just you know looking for studies and, and, and data, uh, getting better data about these issues is probably um, premature. I mean, there's a there, there's another side to this, right, that we haven't touched upon because we've um, we focused very heavily on consumer protection so far, um, but we're talking about peer-to-peer -peer businesses here, right? And so you've got the peers on the one side are the consumers, but the peers on the other side are the providers, and um, you know we we are transitioning into an economy where a growing fraction of the workforce is going to be sort of making a living by providing goods and services and capital and labor through these peer-to-peer -peer platforms. And so, you know, I mean, an issue that I think sort of like, you know, Warren's discussion and perhaps sort of is, um, you know, within within the purview of like, you know, what, what Congress might be interested in has to do with the fact that we may, may start to see sort of a melting away of the social safety net um, that is often sort of provided in part by employment by a government agency or employment through a large company um, as a larger and larger fraction of the workforce um, is making a living through peer-to-peer -peer platforms. Um, and uh, we have to start thinking about, like, you know, how are we, are we going to just sort of lose the social safety net workers' compensation, um, you know, sort of health insurance and so on. Or are we going to ask the government to step in and, um, like, you know, sort of like, you know, pick up the slack? Or are we going to come up with solutions like, you know, the 401k, which has sort of worked for sort of many upper middle class people as uh, corporate pension plans sort of dwindled, which to me is sort of like a market government individual partnership, right? The individual puts the money, the company matches, the government gives you a tax break. And so that's, um, you know, um, I... I still think it's going to take a few years for us to sort out all of the sort of consumer protection issues around peer-to-peer -peer business. But at the same time, I think it's sort of a good time to start the conversation about um, supplier protection or workforce protection. And I think the liability insurance issues are part of it. This is sort of like, you know, cost of doing business and um, necessary in order to make the market work. But we have a broader question here about, like, you know, what kind of safety net do we want in our society? And to what extent um, have we been relying on sort of people's full-time employment with a large entity in the provision of this safety net? So to dig into this particular issue, there was a New York Times report uh, about Airbnb within the last month um, that suggested that um, many of the people benefiting the most from it were actual uh, commercial operators of real estate. 
not <coughs> smaller individuals. So that the framing of this as a collaborative consumption uh, uh, engine, as something that's helping lots of people supplement their income, might not be quite matched up with how the pr large proportion of the revenues are being made. Now, I know that this is a tough question to bring up, but in terms of what you see in your markets, is that what's happening? Are you seeing professional operators making the majority of revenue from renting out guest houses, renting out apartments they already own already, buying apartments just to rent them? Or is, do you have a large number proportionally of individuals who are getting a room to rent? Right. So it's a little distracting when they talk about this because the facts are about 90% of our hosts have just their own home. I imagine right? it's very so, distracting whenever the New York Times right. talks about you. But it's, what, is, what it does is it prevents a solution, right? I mean, there are clearly, if 90% are doing their own home, then 10% are doing something else. And if you're doing more than your own home, you're making a disproportionate share of revenue, right? Like if you're doing your own home for a week and you're making $1,000 a year, as opposed to having a second home for 300 weeks and you're making $20,000 a year or $50,000 a year, it skews towards a, a revenue result that's different than the actual story. It's still the vast majority of our revenue and our listings and our hosts are just regular people doing this. And there's a reason for that, actually, is because people who have vacation rental homes usually use other companies. I mean, there, there are other companies who specialize in permanent resident, permanent sort of vacation rentals. What we do with our tools is we make it a lot easier to do it safely if you're just doing this for a week a year. Um, so instead of a bulletin board in the college or Craigslist or word of mouth, you're actually using our tools. So a lot of the people that the New York Times were talking about have actually been taken off our site. Because one interesting thing we, th we saw after the AG um, talked about this is we didn't actually realize how many people there were um, with a lot of listings. You know, there were a small number of people who had too many listings. And it turns out they were also providing actually not a very good service to our customers. And we had not paid enough attention to that. So when we looked at people who had 100 listings, for example, their ratings were much lower than people who had one listing. Because people who came onto Airbnb were looking for a personal, local experience. They, they, they buy into the sharing economy. They really want to meet their host. They want to be told, you know, here's the local deli to go to. Here's the alley not to walk down in New York City. Whatever it's going to be, they're expecting something from our site. And cookie-cutter hosts who had 100 listings were not providing it. And so there's actually a natural incentive for us to do the same thing that the government happens to want us to do in New York, which is to concentrate more on regular people and less on people who are doing this for a living. On the other hand, in Aspen, in the Outer Banks, in Cape May, you know, vacation rentals are the only reason these economies even survive, right? It's, it's for a whole summer or a whole winter. They're rented around the clock, and someone else might live there nine months a year. They might live there even during that time, but rent out a, a room or a you know part of the home. But either way, you couldn't take away vacation rentals from those places. And so it really depends city by city what they care about. Um, I will say that we just simply, we need to break through the argument that there are too many people doing the wrong thing to get to how we protect the people doing the right thing. And, you know, the statistics are important. So, things will always go wrong in any of I mean, there's life. People are people. People will slip. People will hurt each other, right? But what's extraordinary about these sites, because of the rating system and because of this reputation system, is how infrequently it happens. You know, we've had 26 million people stay on Airbnb, 16 million just this year since January, right? That's a lot of growth. That's a lot of people. How many stories have you heard about things going wrong? Not very many. Because you have a reputation. You rate each other and you, you pick the right kind of situation. So I think you couldn't, you know, whatever happens, you know, there will be something that happens on Airbnb. The results should not be one thing happened 
so therefore the sharing economy should be shut down. That doesn't happen in any other industry, right? It should be one thing happened, what's in place to minimize that, how do we better do it? And the irony here is that all the tools that are making it more transparent and safer and less likely that things will go wrong are the same tools that raise the attention of governments. And so that's why we're in this situation where governments really have to decide now, are we going to see what happens because they're doing the right thing, or are we just going to shut it down before they have that chance? So what's the right role of your government, Adam? Is it, is it that we should have local AGs who occasionally ask and say, what's really going on in your market dynamics? Disclose us some data and then see if there's some adjustment. Is, is that, it the light that touch? That might be part of it. I've already described one part of it, okay. which is a flexible evolutionary common law system that where liability norms – I'm not sure why you're smirking. Uh, <laughs> uh, liability norms have historically adjusted to accommodate new technological realities. And I would uh, draw to everyone's attention a wonderful new report from the Brookings institution on this question of can product liability law evolve to accommodate new emerging disruptive technologies, written by John Villasenor of UCLA Law School. Um, and he points out that we've had these same debates many, many times over. And what has happened is cases and controversies have come before courts, and we've decided what kind of liability to affix to various parties, depending on what kind of knowledge they had of circumstances. Now, that isn't the only part of the answer, but you seem to want to go ahead and... Well, the, the, reason, the reason I smiled is because not everyone, work, like not everyone, not every country has a common law system. Well, that, well, we're talking about, I think, most of the states here, and we do well, have a common law system. If okay. we want to talk about how this plays out in continental Europe, we could, which would be more code-driven, yeah. right? But luckily, we're not Europe. All right. Thank you very much. <laughs> so uh, well, let's just dispense with that question for now and table it for another day, because I think the better question is how we can have a layered approach to dealing with accidents and problems as they develop here, having a flexible, responsive one. Maybe the AGs do play a role. Maybe the Federal Trade Commission plays a role. Maybe state FTCs play a role, right? Maybe class action lawsuits play a role. There are many different remedies. There isn't one. But I want to reiterate the point that was just made a moment ago, and this is the way I put it in a recent book of mine, that is if we spend all of our time obsessing about hypothetical worst-case scenarios and trying to construct preemptive public policy upon worst-case scenarios, then best-case scenarios will never come about. And that is the most important thing to keep in mind here because, as was just noted, the vast majority of this commercial activity is of a complete, completely peaceful and satisfactory nature. There are these random anecdotes that we see in stories once in a while, like this happened, that happened. Yeah, let's have some liability. Let's have some, let's deal with that. And I bet you there's a policy on the books already that does. But we shouldn't go and upend the entire sharing economy based upon the fear of the hypothetical worst case. Let me bring it back to you here. One of the interesting uh, sort of new elements that we're seeing on a, on a large scale is the release of data by government. Uh, one of the dynamics that's maybe undercovered or underrealized is the uh, uh, effect of regulators releasing data about the regulated. Uh, one substantive example we have is the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau releasing data about credit card fees into the market and then having that have an impact upon those uh, regulated just by simply releasing what that is. Um, there was another example from the Department of Labor where you have a company that FOIAs millions of dollars of worth of, of labor data, about 401k fees released into the market. You see some adjustments, so there's some transparency. Why shouldn't we be asking these companies in a simple way to say, disclose the data about what you're doing so that we can have a more transparency and reduction of the asynchronies of information between the people who are consuming, the people who are trying to understand what's happening, consumer advocates who want to understand, and, of course, the customers who are making choices? Well, I mean, 
I'm not completely opposed to data transparency. I mean, like, you know, let me sort of be clear about that. I mean, I, I like to see a good reason for that because there's a, you know, there's, there's, there's clearly a privacy trade-off here. Um, and I think that um, we have sort of like, you know, we're building on a long history of platforms knowing more about what people's interactions are than the government does. Um, we're sort of shifting some of the roles outside of the context of the sharing economy um, from sort of the government to the platforms de facto. This isn't sort of like, you know, Apple and um, Amazon seem to sort of be the arbiters of copyright law right now rather than, like, you know, because we, we sort of sign licenses with them and this has sort of happened largely unnoticed. And so, you know, if we do sort of ask for transparency in transactions between, um, like, you know, sort of like between peers on peer-to-peer -peer platforms, um, I think we should do two things first. I mean, first of all, um, we should sort of make sure that this information sort of doesn't lead to privacy violations that are sort of unanticipated or these unintended consequences. And we should have some sense for, like, you know, what is the wrong that is potentially going to be corrected. I mean, we don't have to have identified one before we demand it, but we should at least have a sense for, like, you know, what is it that we're trying to improve before we demand protection. Um, I'm going to sort of take the opportunity that, like, you know, sort of like, you know, keep talking without pausing, because I, I wanted to go back to sort of one, one point that was made earlier about... Um, like, you know, um, that, that, that David made earlier about, like, you know, sort of 90% of their hosts being sort of like, you know, peers rather than professionals. And I, I spoke to the same Times reporter that wrote that article about, like, the business tycoons. And I mean, I think a point that goes escape, um, I mean, that, that doesn't go sort of noticed here, and in part perhaps because I haven't been communicating it clearly enough, because I, I, I've been looking at sort of data about peer-to-peer -peer interactions um, um, for at least a year now and I'm on the verge of sort of releasing some results about economic impact. But a theme that seems to emerge is that there's a disproportionate positive impact of this kind of peer-to-peer -peer business on people on, for people on the lower end rather than the higher end of the income spectrum. And this seems to come from three sources. I mean, one source is simply participation. Someone who couldn't afford a car is now sort of driving a car on demand when they need it. Um, it comes from sort of like, you know, um, renting up in some sense. Like, you know, I used to have a barrier to like, you know, how much I had to pay every month to own a particular kind of car. I can now um, sort of like, you know, consume a better car by not owning it or by renting it. And the third is um, from like, you know, sort of a, a alternative income stream. So, you know, I buy a better car than I would have bought it, I would have otherwise bought because um, I can now sort of make some money off of it by renting it out when I'm not using it. And so the amount of money I have every month to spend on my car payments is higher. My guess is that, like, you know, although I don't have data sort of one way or the other on this, is that you will see the same kinds of effects induced by Airbnb on sort of like, you know, people's quality of dwelling, right? Because if you can rent it out periodically, um, you can end up spending more. And so I think it's really, I mean, like, you know, one of the roles that I certainly sort of see for the federal government is in sort of inducing sort of a greater level of transparency, not necessarily in the transactional data, but on the data that can be then used to sort of establish that, like, you know, these theories that we have about, like, you know, how the sharing economy will have positive impacts, 
that these that this sort of like you know this theory can actually sort of be empirically tested and these effects that like you know I'm able to demonstrate because I'm partnering with a platform and sort of like you know getting their data because there's there's sort of a huge amount of value creation that is possible and like you know all indications that I have seem to suggest that it's value creation on the lower end rather than the higher end of the income spectrum and it shifted to something else and come back or do you is it, is it fast it's on the, on your specific question about the transparency related to the transactional data yep um, besides the privacy concern that we have to be aware of about what data records you open up for transparency's sake, you have to understand that some of these companies, specifically the smaller operators, that data is essentially their only really valuable intellectual property. And that to require it all to be opened up, all that transactional data, would be requiring them to reveal to others potentially their business secrets or their sort of secret sauce that keeps their little pure sharing economy thing going. So if I eat with or feastly and I've got to share everything about my customers with somebody else, well, then they might have a better good idea about how I'm better serving customers, and then they can just build, you know, something else on top of it without giving me any value for it. So one of the things that um, I wrote about recently in Wired uh, was this issue of data access. Um, and it came up um, because of something called Godview. Now, a lot of you are Uber users. Have you heard of Godview? I don't see any of them saying yes. Okay. Um, Uber has the capacity to track all of the cars moving around in a city at a given time. Uber has the internal capacity to say who is in the cars at a given time. How many people in D.C. would love to know who's traveling with whom at a given time in D.C.? How many people would love to know that over the course of a given day before a major bill passes? I'm guessing that's pretty interesting. Now, one of the things that happened because of a stray remark at a closed-to-press uh, party, don't talk to BuzzFeed reporters unless it's very clear what the conditions are, folks, um, that someone made a, a, a veiled threat, and then it came out that a reporter had had an executive access her location using their platform. Now, the Washington Post advanced that story, and it came out that, in fact, someone who was interviewing for a job had access to Godview and was able to go in and see a record just because they're interviewing at the company and see who the individual was that was related to a powerful politician. Now, one of the things that happens in the sharing economy examples we're talking about with these platforms is you have a vast amount of metadata. This is a concept we've heard a lot about in Congress over the last year or so. Um, that describes interactions that were previously silent, latent, or dark, that weren't apparent, that now become clear because you can see how people are interacting over spaces and time. And that location data is really interesting, right? Because you can see where people are at different times. It opens up a brand new place for law enforcement to ask for data requests. Those are absolutely going to spike. You can expect that. And it also opens up a huge new capacity for potential abuse by people who are have, well, access to the platform. And you've seen Lyft and Uber now revise their policies around data privacy and access because they realize, oh, wait a second, this is a problem for us because our consumer trust is at issue. As we look at the next generation of these platforms, there's going to be more of the data gathering going on and then more questions about who has access and when. Now, I know when I brought up this question of liability, if, if someone using the platform acts badly, who, who is responsible for it? And I saw someone on Twitter say, ah, never, never the platform or the business, always the employee. And I said, okay, fine. What if the employee used customer data to know when someone generally was in the given place? 
and then went to that place? What if someone else used customer data in another place? I put out these hypotheticals because the data access is not always as well governed at startups. If you go back to the reporting, we know Facebook could look at individuals' profiles early on. Any employee could look at people's profiles and interactions. I bring these up because these are data privacy issues, and those are things I think Congress generally does pay attention to, or at least would. I don't know. There's no consumer privacy uh, law that's been passed recently. So to both of you, um, one, um, what kinds of audits do you put into place um, so that uh, people can't access profiles? And two, what kinds of uh, data auditing or oversight should there be for these kinds of companies? Um, so first, I think it's important to know that this is an issue that's gone on forever, right? I remember when I got to Capitol Hill from law school, I pointed out that when you used to do Lexis and Westlaw, you could look up social, you could look up people's names and get their social security number. Mm. So I worked for Diane Feinstein. I said, I didn't know this person had a credit card in your name, and she got really annoyed. And Westlaw refused to change it. And so for for years and years, students and and staff here could just randomly get social security numbers. There was no reason behind it. And finally, I then went to work for Chuck Schumer. And I brought up the same issue, and he said, yeah, I have an idea. We'll stop them. And so we threatened to publish um, Brad Pitt and Jennifer Aniston's Social Security numbers hmm. to show that you could get them. And they immediately flew in, and they stopped the practice, right? So they had to decide, why do we have this, and how are we going to protect that practice? And all, all companies have had to do that. I mean, obviously, hotels have that same data. Um, the technology makes it more interesting and harder, um, and you definitely need to institute those protections sooner. Smart companies know that this is this is our lifeblood, and people will just leave. And you know, one reason we were so sensitive to this attorney general's request is we didn't know where it was coming from. Um, we knew that some people there were very hostile to us, and we thought there was a chance that they would just want to expose people, um, which has the unintended or intended consequence of driving people off of platforms back to where you didn't know what was going on. So livery drivers, there was no platform, right? They would just pick someone up on the street, and if they hurt someone, no one would even know about it. You know, you'd find, you'd find a body. What's interesting about Uber is someone gets hurt, and Uber is held accountable. And so whether it's a law or not, there is an incentive by these companies to do the right thing to avoid that, that, that blowback and keep their customers. And so that happens a lot with all of us, is trying to figure out how to protect the data. Um, and that's, I think that, that's not a sharing economy. Issue, issue at all, but for, for I think it's a startup issue because, like everything, a startup you know that you don't even know if it's going to work, let alone start thinking about lawyers and protecting and everything else. So. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, just I'm glad you brought up the BuzzFeed issue. I mean, let's be clear that Uber has not done itself any favors lately in terms of uh, garnering its reputation. My favorite Uber story was uh, I guess a year or so ago. I saw they were they put out a list of the top hookup cities in the country based on. Uh, how many people in that city had uh, gotten an Uber ride uh, between like 10 and 1 a.m. and then left again at like 3 or 4 to go somewhere else. Um, and, you know, that's fairly creepy to me. Um, but whether or not they should be able to collect that data in the first place um, is, is a question I think I would absolutely agree with you. It's not just an Uber issue. It's not just an, an Airbnb issue. It's a, it's a, it's a issue about... Uh, what technology companies keep and, and, and how they use it. Um, but I think beyond that, what's more important to me as an advocate is how are they securing that data? So, um, you, you know, we only have to look at the, the headlines of, of data breaches all the time to know that the greater, the more data that we put in, in the hands of companies like Uber and Google and others, uh, the more vulnerable that, that data becomes to malicious use. Um, so I think that one area that Congress can look at 
is uh, data security issues, uh, data security standards, uh, data breach notification. Um, these are all uh, cyber insurance liability, uh, cyber insurance underwriting standards is another one. So hoping you wouldn't say cyber. Yeah, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> data security underwriting, is that better? All right, there we go. Um, are, are issues that, that Congress can look at that have ramifications far beyond uh, uh, the start of economy. I, I just want to agree with what everybody said in terms of this being a broader issue besides this, than just the sharing economy. I mean, the question of data privacy, data security is a wide-ranging one that we're dealing with in many other facets of our economy right now, and specifically with regards to locational tracking issues. Mm -hmm. um, and let's just be clear. I mean, there already are steps that are being taken, even if there's no congressional enactment of a new law on this. The FTC has uh, pushed, pushed forward, I think, almost now 50 data security-related cases. I don't know what the latest number is. Um, these are against some of the biggest names in the digital economy. Um, a state AGs have investigated various matters, uh, and if it got you, I think one of the incidents was in Chicago. I'm willing to bet the FTC is looking into this now, and I'm betting about the Illinois AG is looking into it. Mm -hmm. uh, again, there are those other methods you can utilize on. Uh, the, the privacy torts might, uh, might come into play, so on and so forth. Clearly, there's a question of how we can have better best practices for this sector. I think as companies, sharing economy companies, uh, scale up, they'll be in a position where they have to adopt a set of best practices and clear, uh, uh, make it clear to their customer base what kind of information is collected, what they'll utilize it for, and more importantly, what they won't utilize it for. And then that will become something that we use to hold them to the promises they make to their customers. But this is a give and take kind of thing. I mean, locational tracking is not all bad. It sounds nefarious, but without locational tracking, a big portion of our digital economy and the sharing economy just wouldn't work. But I, so we can't upset that. I mean, I think the different one one distinction I think that that sort of makes um, data gathering for sharing economy activity um, different. Um, is the fact that we are sort of intersecting very heavily with the real world here, right? And typically my sharing of my location is voluntary. And like, you know, I check in on Foursquare, I check in on Facebook, you know, um, but, you know, m maybe the use of mobile phones is sort of like, you know, one example. But for a lot of like real world activities, the sharing of the locational information is necessary in order to sort of like, you know, have the service provided to you, right? And Uber is the classic example there. And so it's, it's, it's probably something that, um, like, you know, sort of requires particular sort of, like, you know, attention because our movements in physical space are now sort of like, you know, um, a required... Don't, don't we have this with smartphones already? We, we We're do. all carrying smartphones right on us right now. So. Yep, I know, but, but it's, it's, it's a small set of companies there, right? I mean, like, you know, you've got the people who are, like, you know, your carriers and maybe sort of like, you know, the advertising companies who are serving up the ads. And, and we're having a pretty uh, strong debate uh, in, here in Congress about who gets to access smartphone data and where it should rest, right? I mean, this, that's what the uh, USA Freedom Act was really all about, right? And, and everyone now acknowledges that that bulk data from these phones with the metadata associated with is extraordinarily powerful. This is the app here, which is collecting data about location, is another vector into that. Um, and if we don't see ahead of time that location data is associated with these services, then you, there's a there's a real opportunity. Yeah, and I and I agree with you completely, Alex. That um, you know we we need like you know this is certainly sort of a topic where you want to sort of think about sort of intervention um, and a set of guidelines or a set of laws that govern it. Um, but you know when I talk to my students about privacy and regulating privacy and like you know sort of the market failures associated with it, we, we tend to sort of distinguish between three approaches, which is you know regulation regulating the collection of the data, 
regulating the use of the data and then regulating the storage of the data. And the consensus always tends to be that regulating the collection is sort of near impossible. Um, regulating the usage might be possible if you've got the right metadata, and regulating the storage seems essential. And so um, that's that's probably like you know one distinction to be drawn up front before we sort of go down the path of saying like you know what what should companies be um, sort of required to do. It's well, like, I, you know, I'm going to um, jump in with moderator's privilege in two counts. Then I want to get at least one question about a couple more in. Um, one is that I don't think regulating collection is completely impossible. Um, and this is something that's very important to talk about in terms of infrastructure. Um, there's a parallel movement going on right now in, in concert with the sharing economy that you could call the smart cities movement. People heard this idea, the buzzword before, this idea that you put sensors all throughout cities. Now, it's very easy as you go through an upgrade infrastructure to do that because things are much lower cost now. So you can do things like put LED lights that are motion activated into parking garages in an airport that then sends when people go by. Sounds like a fine thing. Now, the trouble is when you start to associate lower and lower quality of uh, higher, higher quality video and then low cost of storage, then you can start to see how people's movements can be tracked. If there's no discussion about infrastructure that goes in that has sensors that can collect data about people's movements in the real world, you've now instituted a situation where collection is inevitable. This is not a discussion that's, by the way, being, ha being had in many municipalities. They're simply upgrading infrastructure to add intelligence to the systems. There's a very strong case to be made for efficiency improvements and for all kinds of improvements in terms of traffic movements, in terms of uh, energy. I mean, these are really potent uh, uh, changes. If you can save 3 4 5% of a municipal government's budget. At the same time, though, you're creating new data collection venues with governance that may not be very strong. And if you've seen any of the articles about civil forfeiture, you can imagine how some of those misuses could be happening at the law enforcement yep. level, too. So I, I wanted to, that, that's my soapbox a little bit, why data collection isn't always inevitable because the conversations aren't happening when the upgrades are going in. Now, sir, I wanted to make sure you're in. And then if, if, if you feel like identifying yourself, that'd be great. Steve Delbianco with NetChoice. It's been a great discussion. And all four panelists have uh, argued persuasively for regulatory forbearance. <laughs> Alex, not so much because I think you're a very provocative uh, moderator, and I think that's very useful. Well, they're they're all sort of on that side, so I have to push. To balance that out. Right. Well done. Thank you. The, the forbearance was partly for regulators to catch up to actual complaints and harms, or for insurers to catch up on the data necessary to rate activities. In the real world, that's only possible for peer-to-peer -peer innovations that can occur without permission slips. Learning out a table saw or a snowblower or even a home doesn't require a permission slip. But the ride sharing is different. In virtually every city, that stuff is regulated and police can ticket and impound vehicles. So there, the industry and the peers, we have to run into legislatures and city councils and beg permission to be allowed to do the peer-to-peer -peer sharing. Is the question coming up? Here it is. Mm -hmm. When that happens, you create a leverage point. Okay. So insurers, privacy advocates, anybody can run in and say, if we're going to give you a permission slip, we get to heap in there all of the regulatory things we'll ever need forever. So I believe, my question is, how do we distinguish between the peer-to-peer -peer activities that can occur without a permission slip and those that require a permission slip? Because that is the area we have to protect the most. Anyone want to feel that? All right. Um, so uh, it's a great question, Steve. And I think that uh, the standard I would look at if I was a municipal legislator trying to figure out this would be what's the risk of harm involved? 
So um, I'll take this to a logical extreme and say, what if we had a peer-to-peer sh- uh, platform for sharing guns? Um, would we need to have a permission slip for somebody to innovate so that we could share guns? And I think most people in the room would probably say, yeah, that's probably a good idea um, because guns are inherently dangerous. Uh, cars are can be inherently dangerous, uh, and therefore I think the the it is right to apply a, a higher standard for what you would the permission they would need to ride sharing than you would to other uh, services that may not be as inherently dangerous. The food sharing, for example. Um, I also think that um, I mean part of uh, you know. P- p- I mean, part of the answer to your question has to do with, um, like, you know, does the permission slip already exist? And um, what were the market failures that the permission slip was developed to prevent? Like, you know, I think, yeah, so no, nobody would disagree that 25 years ago, you know, like people were happy about taxi cabs being regulated in New York City because it made people feel safe getting into a taxi cab. And so when you're sort of replacing an existing behavior, of like you know, sort of like you know, being driven around by someone else commercially at scale, um, then like you know, you want to sort of rethink the role of the permission slip. On the other hand, when you're scaling a behavior that used to be informal, which is like you know, lending the snowblower, and to some extent, Airbnb to me sort of falls somewhere in between because it's short-term accommodation, but it's renting out your apartment. Then you have to sort of give careful thought to sort of what the role of the permission slip is going to be. Mm-hmm. Have you wanted to comment? Uh, just very brief, uh, indirect comment based on that. I don't know if anybody saw, but the U.K. government recently came up with a major report called Unlocking the Sharing Economy, an independent review. It's a, it's a nice report, um, and it includes the recommendation that would partially address your concerns, Steve, which is that the sharing economy itself needs to come together to have a single voice on common concerns and to set benchmarks and standards of service in order that consumers know what they can expect when they use these services. They can also have a common voice as it pertains to problems like you've identified. And right now, the sharing economy is very decentralized, dispersed, uh, different sectors, different actors. And that's a wonderful thing. But it leads to a problem like the one you've identified, an uh, inability to come together. A job advertisement for new lobbyists? <laughs> yeah, well, you take it. <laughs> Not so much. All right. Any more questions? Uh, this woman here. and get to you, too. Hmm. How are you all handling tax issues? So it's an interesting question, and we've we've had some interesting experiences. <laughs> Again, as people come off of doing this just on their own, sort of ad hoc with bulletin boards, being on a platform that we you know we take the money and then we hand out the money. Um, so there is this opportunity for us to get involved in this if people want us to. So we've offered we're paying taxes in Portland. Um, these are hotel taxes, which we. We're not sure that apply to us, but let's assume they do. So we give everyone a 1099 or a, a W something, you know, so the Fed, they can pay their federal income tax. Um, but then these hotel taxes have come up, and in certain cities we've started to try and pay them. In New York, we kept hearing, this is unfair, it's not a level playing field with hotels, you're not paying taxes. So we said, okay, well, we'll collect the taxes. Um, and then the hotel industry said, please don't let them collect the taxes. Um, so we're not, we're not sure what to do. It's actually tens of millions of dollars that we could be collecting from hosts, but the tax laws are very complicated. Hosts who do this a week, a year, have absolutely no idea how to figure out the taxes. You know, we say hotel tax, but it's really five or six different taxes. 
they don't apply to everybody. And so we're trying to work that through with municipalities, but that's where you get some of these external entrenched interests who they're not sure whether they want the government, I guess, to get addicted to that money. Um, but here's millions and millions of dollars that are being earned, whether we exist or not, by hosts, and millions of dollars of taxes that they don't know how to pay. And one thing these platforms can do is step in and try and fix that, whether it's a line item just to let them know they can pay and where to go, whether it's collecting the money in bulk and turning it over to the government, which we've offered to do in a few cities. Um, you know, people have to decide whether they'll take it. And this is an interesting thing where government hasn't yet decided. New York, the law doesn't let us do that, so the law would have to be changed, and they have not yet changed the law. And it's, so. and it's probably going to get way more complicated than that because um, – you know, I mean, on the one hand, you've got sort of what used to be an underground economy, some part of it sort of now becoming more transparent, and that's a good thing. Um, but you've also got a scaling of the behavior, right? I mean, like, you've got a lot more people will start to engage in peer-to-peer -peer business. And so you're going to have fewer people who are employed full-time. And so what, what, what you might end up seeing is a fragmentation of, like, you know, sort of the units of taxable sort of income that are reported, a reduction in the number of people who are reporting traditional income tax because they have now set themselves up as small businesses, and because of that, a potential fall in the tax base at the same time that, like, you know, the safety net that was being provided by the corporations or the governments that these people worked for um, sort of starting to shrink as well. And so, like, you know, we... We, we may sort of need a, um, like, you know, this is an ivory tower answer, but, like, you know, we may need sort of um, a closer look at our tax system to sort of try and figure out how we're going to be funding these capital contributions. Congress may say. think about tax reform in the next term. That's yeah. one of the things on that on the plate. Uh, I, I will say that in answer to your question, though, if, if there is a market that can be digitized, it will be. And so the expectation I have is that um, almost any kind of uh, – value exchange in the shadow economies that can be um, put into a platform will be. The ones that can't be brought above board, um, you know, uh, Uber for prostitution, um, you know, those will be in the dark net, right? And that is very hard to tax, but I'm sure this being Washington, someone will try. Um, that is a question in the back. The, the knowledge, yeah. C can you clarify it in terms of what comparison you're looking for? Um, like, in terms of the acceptance of this um, creative destruction, like it's taking over the United States and part of Airbnb and Uber and whatnot, but how is it, how, how is it happening across the country, uh, right. across the world? Who's, who's taking the broad view on this one? You want, want to... I'll just make a very brief comment, and then maybe somebody else can answer more specifically, yeah. but it's very interesting to see how this is playing out uh, across Europe because um, many uh, in continental Europe have been very aggressively trying to find a way to pigeonhole these new technologies into old regulatory systems. But this U.K. government report I cited is interesting, and it shows that the U.K. is really trying to blaze its own trail in Europe. Um, the uh, Minister of State and Business for Enterprise and Energy, uh, Matthew Hancock, said in this report, the U.K. is embracing disruptive business models and challenger businesses that increase competition and offer new products and experiences to consumers. 
Where other countries and cities are closing down consumer choice and limiting people's freedom to make better use of their possessions, we are embracing it. So you're seeing a bit of differentiation among certain countries to try to draw, attract new business, and the U.K. seems to be making a major bet on this. I think you see the same thing playing out in Asia as well, but I'm less familiar with it there. And that should be no surprise. I mean, the U.K. has a a center-right government right now, which, you know, more or less embraces uh, any kind of market uh, driven approach to economies, um, and the sort of neoliberal consensus is very much in ascendancy right now in that part of the world. The question is, in other countries where they are in a different bent, whether they will accept uh, you know, entrepreneurs coming into heavily regulated areas. And certainly, you mentioned France; it's not at all yeah. uh, a strong thing. I mean, I mean, I think it, there are there are three things that I've noticed. I mean, one is. Um, that uh, in certain non-U.S. countries, um, the quality of, like, you know, the existing sharing solution, and you take sort of like taxi, for example, um, is often a lot higher than it is in the United States. Sort of the old way of doing things is done a lot better. And I think that, like, you know, people sort of cite Germany as an example of this. And so over there, the resistance is stronger because you're not sort of solving as much of a problem in those countries as you are in the United States. Um, the second thing is that the behavior is sometimes more familiar. Um, I think in certain sort of European cities, the idea of renting someone else's apartment um, for a period of time is sort of much more commonly sort of uh, practiced behavior than it is. And so, like, you know, the, the social norms around that and the social acceptance of the behavior and the externalities, talk, like, you know, I'm always amused when, my, when people sort of bring up the externality associated with Airbnb and noisy neighbors. They're like, oh, we've got these tourists coming through our buildings and, like, you know, there's a lot of noise. And I'm like, what city do you live in? I mean, like, you know, I, like, you know, tell me what building you live in where your neighbors are quiet and, like, you know, sort of like, you know meditation parties. I mean, I, I, I don't know where these, but, like, you know, it's in, a familiarity. In Virginia, actually, suburban Virginia, that, that's where I, I know people who complain about yep. this. They, okay. they live in areas with big houses and they're used to quiet neighbors and then the whole house gets rented out as a party house. No, no, no. I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm just talking about the people in New York who complain yeah. about this, but there's the sort of a familiarity with behaviors. But the, the, the third thing, which is um, sort of I'm seeing in countries that are, like, you know, often labeled emerging markets, is thinking about this as an opportunity to build infrastructure. And there's sort of a leapfrogging effect here. I mean, we saw a lot of these countries go straight from sort of no phones to mobile phones, like leapfrogging the whole, like, you know, sort of wireline um, systems. And, you know, you sort of see a similar thing emerging here where, like, you know, smaller cities, say, in India might be thinking that, you know, instead of building, like, you know, with high capital investment, like, you know, a transportation system, maybe, like, you know, sort of like, you know, a platform-based approach is the answer, or instead of, like, you know, sort of the capital expenditure associated with hotels, maybe sort of a favorable position towards, like, you know, home sharing or, like, you know, peer-to-peer accommodation is the answer. And so, like, you know, I I often think of these things, especially for countries in emerging markets, as um, sort of being akin to invisible infrastructure. Any regional differences you'd comment for accepting Airbnb in? Yeah, I mean, I think I think that's the point is that we find Europe is much more accepting. They're more used to this technology. I think it turns out really the U.S. culture is the hotel culture, but most of the world, this is just pretty common and it makes sense to them. I also think the discussions we've had with governments for the most part in Europe are less political than they are here. They really look at the issue, and I'm biased, but I think we're right on the issue, which is if their citizens are doing this once in a while and you can bring it above board and make it more transparent and pay taxes, that makes sense to them, and so they've adopted this. Um, 
And so we've, you know, Paris is now our biggest market, surpassing New York. And I don't think it's a coincidence. You know, they looked at a big housing bill and they made a clear delineation between renting out one or two places and renting out many places. And they said, if you want to rent out one or two places, that's fine. So it's growing. Did you just break some news under there? Um, I don't think so. <laughs> okay, I have to check on that one. Uh, they're going to get this question, then, uh, then after that, none. All right, last question. Yep. Good question to end on, gentlemen. Well, I think in the uh, at least if you're looking at these and from a competition point of view, a couple thoughts come to mind. Number one uh, is recognizing that it's at least in, in many of these uh, platforms, you're not just it's not just a competition for users of the platform in terms of consumers. It's also it's a two-sided marketplace. So you ask Uber and Lyft, are they competing to attract customers? They'll say, yeah. Are you, are you competing to attract drivers? That's where they are uh, really uh, butting heads um, to try and, to try and uh, attract drivers. So it's important to look at both sides. That's, that's the message. But then I think in terms of consumer protection regulation, uh, I think the, 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 the charge to Congress and to legislators everywhere is to recognize the difference between protecting competitors and con protecting com competition. So uh, it, it's it's striking to me as a consumer advocate to see uh, interests and, and and Adam talks a little bit about this in his paper uh, the lengths to which established hotels and taxicab commissions are using consumer protection regulation which they will vociferously hate uh, that it, it uh, for forever until that consumer protection regulation protects their market share right so it, your charge is to differentiate the whether consumer protection regulation is being used as a way to protect the entrenched business interest or if it's being used legitimately to protect the interest of consumers who are using these services. And I, um, I, I had a conversation with uh, your, your, your colleagues at the FTC about this in July. And, um, you know, I mean, these are, as um, sort of pointed out, these are two-sided markets. Platforms tend to sort of have economics that favor, like, you know, in some cases, like, you know, the dominance of one large player. And so we shouldn't be surprised if we see sort of like, you know, one dominant platform in each of these markets. Um, but, you know, in, in, in some cases, um, like if you take ride sharing or ride selling, as some people like to call it, for example, um, these markets may be more contestable than we think they are because they're sort of local. Like, you know, I um you know, we like the fact that Lyft is in 65 cities and Uber is all around the world because of the convenience. But eventually, um, like, you know, if you live in D.C., you're going to use the best service that is best in D.C. And so there's sort of like a local sort of um, concentration of supply and demand in these markets that may make them sort of like, you know, may make sort of antitrust issues um, less of a concern than they are, for example, for Facebook or that they were for Microsoft. A really quick final point, because I see Tim Lord's itching to get out of here. <laughs> so, uh, you know, if the concern is market power, we have antitrust laws. They're not going away. They'll still cover abusive market power. Um, but the point of the, the, the real point here is that 
this is still such a new sector. We would have not even had this debate two years ago. We would not have known these companies' names. We would have not have known what to call this economy. So the pace of creative destruction in this sector is really unparalleled. So I think we should do everything we can to give competition a chance because it seems to be doing a pretty good job so far. So if to sum up, I would say Congress should care but forbear. Uh, so, yeah, yeah, well, that's the writer. There we go. So thank you so much for everyone for coming, for the good questions. See you online.